Welcome to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org slash caravan. Our podcasts are a new undertaking, and we intend to produce about two each month. Please follow us. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with David Rundell, who is a leading expert on Saudi Arabia and author of the new book, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. David is a former American diplomat who spent 16 of his 30 years with the Foreign Service in Saudi Arabia, serving in such posts as Chargé d'Affaires and Chief of Mission. His book provides an insider's look at the Saudi Kingdom's ongoing transformation under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, aka MBS. In 2016, as many will know, MBS put forward an ambitious reform platform known as Vision 2030, which set targets for diversifying Saudi Arabia's economy and liberalizing its society. Since then, the country has undergone dramatic change, but some would say not entirely for the better. While women are now able to drive and the religious police has seen its power curtailed, the specter of a more authoritarian and repressive government has many concerned. David's book poses the question whether the ongoing changes we are witnessing will prove to be a successful vision or a deceptive mirage. David, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are we today? It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks Thank for you coming. for the invitation. Thanks for being on. Yeah, I thought we would begin by, by talking about your book before moving on to issues of, of U.S.-Saudi relations under the, the Biden administration. So the book I found to be really uh, insightful, rather encyclopedic. I highly recommend it. It covers the history of the Saudi realm going all the way back to the mid-18th century, weaves together the literature on Saudi Arabia with your own firsthand uh, experience. Uh, not many books uh, you're going to find information about the political significance of camel beauty pageants, among other, <laughs> among other things. So uh, it, there's a lot of, of interesting uh, information in here that you won't find uh, anywhere else. So perhaps you could start by just telling us uh, how you came to write this book, um, what the intended audience is, and, and what you're hoping to accomplish. Well, I essentially wrote the book for my colleagues at the American Embassy. I had a unusual and a probably unique experience in that I spent uh, 16 years in one country. Uh, I went back to Saudi Arabia seven times. That's very unusual for most foreign off service officers. They go to a country usually just once and maybe twice, very rarely more than that. Um, and they usually focus on one particular type of job, uh, either political or economic or commercial, whatever. Um, I inverted all of that by staying in one country and doing many different jobs. So I, and I did this over a period of 30 years. So I had both, if you will, a time series and a cross-sectional analysis of Saudi Arabia, uh, which was unique. And a lot of people did tell me that I had something of a responsibility that did not just let all that knowledge disappear. So I sat down to write the book, um, and as I wrote, things changed. So I and I still go to Saudi Arabia regularly. So um, I was able to keep up to date on those things. And so that's really how I came to write the book. It was originally a handbook for my colleagues, but it in the end really became less of an encyclopedia for them and more of an effort to educate the 
or inform, I suppose would be a better word, to inform the educated American public about a country that is important to the United States, but which is very poorly uh, understood. I think that if you had, a, again, a graph uh, with one axis was how important the country is and the other axis is how well do we understand it, most countries would fall along the line that if it's important, we understand it pretty well. If it's not important, we don't pay too much attention to it. Uh, Saudi Arabia is an outlier. Saudi Arabia is important and poorly understood. So part of the reason I wrote the book was to help us make better policy and to avoid future mistakes in the Middle East. It's interesting. Um, why do you think it's been poorly understood despite its importance, obvious importance? I think there are two reasons for that primarily. Um, number one, it is a very unusual place. Okay, it's not easy to understand. Um, I used to tell the young political officers in the embassy that they could throw away their political science books because this country does not function as they had been taught uh, on, as most modern countries do. This is a monarchy. This is the last strategically important traditional monarchy on the planet. If you want to understand how its politics work, go get a book on how Henry VIII ran Tudor England. Uh, its economics are radically different than most countries. Again, what do I mean by that? Well, um, for one thing, the productivity of the people is divorced from the standard of living that they enjoy. For another thing, uh, they don't affect, they don't really have a monetary policy. If you, again, you could throw out your economics 101 book because there are Currency is pegged to the dollar, so they don't really have a monetary policy. Their interest rates are set by the Federal Reserve. Uh, until very recently, there weren't any taxes. So how do you have a fiscal policy in a country that doesn't have much tax or any tax until recently? And then the final thing on economics, which I would tell people, is that you look again at something like a Keynesian multiplier. If you're going to spend money and you should hope that it will trickle through the economy, a lot of the money that the Saudi government spends uh, goes to foreign workers. So it does a lot to help the economy in uh, Pakistan or the Philippines, but not much for Saudi Arabia. So that's just a little, an, a part of example of how the country is very different. Right. Uh, and the final, the other part of the equation is that it's difficult to access. Okay. The Saudis were not welcoming. They did not make it easy for you to go there. Most people don't speak their language. You couldn't even get a visa to go there until recently. So it's two things. It's hard to get to, and it's hard to understand once you get there. Yeah, I can attest to the, the difficulty of obtaining a visa um, myself. When I first went to Riyadh in 2012, it was, it was quite a process. And, um, it's I, much I, easier now. I understand it's a lot easier now. Much um, easier now. I also think, um, I think it was Robert Lacey who, who said that arriving in, in Riyadh is more like arriving in Mars than going to a foreign country. True. Um, but perhaps that's no longer uh, the case. So um, let's get to um, the question that the title poses here of your book, which is Vision or Mirage. Um, and let's talk about the vision that MBS is pursuing and how radical a departure uh, it really is from what has gone before. Socially and economically, um, well, let's begin. Socially, it's a radical change. Uh, there's no, no doubt that the things that he has done and the things that he has proposed in terms of uh, women's rights, uh, 
and in terms of the reduction of power, which you mentioned this, the reduction of power of the religious police, uh, but it goes a lot further than just letting women drive or opening movie theaters. The, the, um, what they referred to as the guardianship regulations, which made a woman get the signature of her husband or father to do many things, open a bank account, get a passport, leave the country, go to university, get a job, open a business, have a cesarean delivery. All of these things required your father or your husband to sign off, literally sign off. Some, sometimes your son, right? And sometimes your yeah. son, yeah. It was, that's yeah. true. I mean, it was your closest male relative. Sometimes it could be your son. Yeah. Um, that has essentially been dismantled, not in 100% because it wasn't just one rule that you could change. It was many different rules. But by and large, that's been dismantled. Girls used to not be able to take gym classes. Girls couldn't go to public uh, sporting events. So a lot of this has changed, and that is probably irreversible as long as the El Saud remain in power. So um, that is definitely a vision. Uh, and it's partly a vision because, he, and I should also argue that it, um, it's not just social issues, it's also bringing women into the workforce. There are aggressive affirmative action programs for hiring women now in both government and in the private sector. There are rules, or not rules, programs that uh, help women uh, with childcare, uh, with help pay for women's transportation uh, to work. And this has changed the lives uh, radically of many, uh, of, of many women, uh, particularly um, poor women. That's something that perhaps uh, listeners would mm -hmm. be unaware of, is that it's the poor women, the divorced women, uh, who don't have a driver for their BMW, uh, who used to have to spend half their income paying a driver to get them to work. Now they can go up by themselves a Hyundai and get themselves to work. And it's changed their lives. It's made, made a big difference for them. So um, that part is definitely a vision, and it's a vision which is materializing. Um, there is also an economic vision. Uh, the economic vision is less new in the sense that the goals that it's attempting to fulfill have been recognized for some time. Uh, they need to create jobs for Saudis, they need to diversify their economy, and they need to find ways to balance their budget to have revenues other than um, oil exports. Uh, what is new about that is the rigorousness and the forcefulness uh, and the determination with which they're pursuing that vision. So some of those ideas are not brand new, but they are definitely being executed or implemented uh, far more aggressively than they have been in the past. An example of that is Saudiization. Uh, one of the problems they have uh, is too many foreign workers. They, are, they have sent home several million of them. So that is definitely happening. Um, the efforts to diversify the economy, to attract foreign direct investment, to balance the budget, those were happening, but more slowly. They're not easy to do, and they have clearly been derailed by COVID and the uh, corresponding collapse of oil prices. So that's difficult, uh, but it's trying to go in the right direction. The very last part of this equation is political. And we can perhaps talk about that in a separate question, but there, there is not a vision for reform so much as a vision for continuity. 
Interesting. Yeah, so let's get to some of the political stuff because a lot of these policies seem to have gone hand in hand with a, a more centralized approach to governance, um, the, the neutralization of the you know, tens of thousands of princes in, in the kingdom, the suspension of a lot of their, their privileges, um, even things, such small things that we wouldn't recognize, but forcing them to pay electricity bills. Um, these kinds of things have um, marked a, a substantial change. So in, in the process of, of um, implementing this vision, he's also gone about alienating a lot of um, different constituencies, whether that's the royals or, or the clerics. Um, and he's also in the process, he's been um, imprisoning a lot of people who we would consider to be reformers or, or activists. Um, so what do you make of the, the kind of repressive turn under his rule? That's a good question. Um, the first, we're, let's talk about political changes that have taken place since King Salman ascended the throne. That's in 2015, right? In 2015, correct. So that's the heading of the, the question, if you will. The first thing that he did, which goes unappreciated by many people, uh, is that he was able to handle what was going to be a very difficult and still could be a very difficult transition from second generation princes to third generation princes, from the sons of King Abdulaziz to the grandsons of King Abdulaziz. This was even for people who have long thought Saudi Arabia was more stable than most thought. Um, even for people like me who thought that way, uh, I recognized that this was a very dangerous inflection point. It had led to the collapse of many dynasties in the past, uh, and it was very likely to cause real problems in Saudi Arabia. There were 34 sons of King Ibn Saud. They had a collective partnership. Uh, they were not all equal, but they all had a voice. They all had a share. They all were very well off and they all had political power and influence. Uh, and some of them had tremendous power and influence in the sense that they actually ran their own offices, their own ministries, their own financial fiefdoms, and even in some cases, their own armies. Um, that system came to an end. Some people would tell you that King Salman ended it. He did not really end it. It died a natural death as they ran out of brothers. So there were only a few left now, and that system had to evolve. When it evolved into the next level, which is over 500 grandsons, all of whom thought they should be king. Uh, that's a uh, lot of grandsons. That's a lot that's... of grandsons. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's more than 500. Uh, so... These guys, everyone said, hey, I'm right. I should be the king. Uh, you know, I'm smart. I'm experienced. Uh, how about me? So this, this could have been a real game of thrones. The king short-circuited that. He figured out who he wanted to put in, in charge. And whether you like the guy he chose or not, he chose him for very specific reasons. And he's likely to become the next king. Now, in doing this... Um, he chose to concentrate power, which he did. Uh, 
King Abdullah had a different vision. King Abdullah tried to, if you will, create, this is, I don't want to get too, too detailed here, but King Abdullah had a different vision of how the family should operate and that he wanted well, to- he, yeah, I mean, the allegiance council is what you were- He had the allegiance yeah. council and yeah. he had a more collectivist view. Uh, Salman took a different approach. He said, no, that's not going to work. We need concentrated power. And what he did was he destroyed all these independent fiefdoms, all these independent ministries. He basically uh, took away the independence even of Aramco, of the central bank, uh, of the military. There used to be three more or less independent militaries. They're all consolidated now. He basically gutted the Ministry of Interior so that their job now is traffic fines and parking tickets uh, and created a special uh, presidency for internal security, which he controls. So it was there. It is definitely much more centralized and potentially and not potentially in reality, um, much more authoritarian. And people are um, concerned about that. Um, whether you had to do that or to, in order to avoid the disruptive Game of Thrones or it could have been done in another way is an open question, you know, that, and it's a hypothetical question. So we'll never know. Uh, but what he did do was concentrate power and avoid that Game of Thrones. Okay, so and this is interesting. Um, it doesn't really matter what we think. It matters what they think. And from the perspective of MBS, it's necessary to concentrate power um, in, in order to achieve this vision. And um, it's also necessary, it seems in his view, uh, to imprison anyone, uh, maybe not anyone, but anyone with a, a real voice who, who speaks out against his vision or who, who is even um, somewhat critical. So um, uh, one example of somebody who's in prison is Salman al-Awda, who's a very prominent uh, cleric. When I first went to, to Saudi Arabia in, in 2013, um, we walked into a bookstore and there were towers of books by Salman al-Awda. And this guy was like a, you know, a public intellectual celebrity, biographies. Uh, now he's in prison in solitary confinement. And that is a huge change. Um, and other, other people he's imprisoned, of course, are women's rights activists, even as he's uh, given women the right to drive. He's, um, I think, in some ways, really burnt a bridge with the West by, by imprisoning people who are regarded as or seen as liberal reformers. So what, what do you think, because it's not really what we, you know, whether we think this is wise, but why do you think he thinks that all of this is necessary in, in pursuit of his vision? Well, I'll back up one second and say, look, the concentration of power had two jobs, two goals. One was to ensure a smooth and uncontested succession. And the other was to implement the social and economic changes that Vision 2030 had. And in the old system was much more consensual, uh, much more deliberative, and very slow. In fact, almost nothing got done because it was too consensual. So part of the concentration of power was also to make it the government more efficient, which it has done. And decisions now, whether you like the decisions or not, is a different story. But the decisions are now taken. I mean, the idea that they would take the religious police off the street, the idea that they would impose a 15 percent VAT, that they would triple your electricity bill. These kind of things would have been very difficult to do under the old system. So it's more more aggressive. Um, dissent. Yes, that is absolutely true. Um, there is much less tolerance of dissent than there used to be. Um, 
And we in the West certainly um, find that distressing. And I think that ultimately uh, it's not good for Saudi stability. Uh, and the only thing that I can say uh, positive about it, really, it's not positive. The only thing you can say that is perhaps uh, somewhat mitigating is that many Saudis, I'll give you a couple examples here. This, the El Saud consider the Muslim brothers and the Muslim Brotherhood to be a threat to the regime. Uh, and they consider many of the scholars who are in prison today to be acolytes of the Muslim Brotherhood, whether they are or not. And this was certainly true of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, it's not entirely untrue. Uh, well, I I, a lot of them have that, similar ideas and I would, personal I, relationships. I would tend yeah. to agree with you, but I but there are people who would not. And that's a that's a subjective judgment. So I try to be talk about things which are you can be objective about. But clearly, the Saudi government believes that these people uh, and the the Muslim Brothers are a organization which is a multi a transnational organization. Much of it uh, is clandestine. It has both political and, if you will, militant wings. It has been implicated in terrorist acts in some places, not everywhere. Uh, and But the Saudi government has, considers them to be a terrorist organization. So um, the people that are, the clerics that are in jail are often in some way or other connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, the liberal reformers, you know, it. The, this is a real problem that the Saudis have, is that they never explain very clearly what these people did or why they're in prison. Um, clearly, these people are not in prison because they want women to drive. Uh, there were many, many people who were protesting that women should drive and they didn't get thrown in jail. So what is it that these people did? You know, the... The story that is given is that they had something to do with Qatar, uh, which is seen by the Saudis as supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and as I say, the Muslim Brotherhood are seen as a direct threat, an internal threat to the regime because they are very anti-monarchical and they use Islam, uh, which is one of the Saudi government's legitimizing uh, pillars. They use Islam in their version against the regime. So they are considered to be a threat. Uh, and some of these people in jail who we would consider activists are in theory supposedly connected to them. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. So I would have to say that this is a problem that the Saudis need to address, that they are not very good at explaining why these people are in prison. And if they are in prison just because they're dissenting, that is, I mean, with, they don't like the um, Vision 2030. Uh, that's a real problem and that we should... Uh, I mean, certainly, in the the case of Jamal Khashoggi, sort of brings together both of these uh, concerns, yep. right? Because he was seen both as uh, sympathetic to the Muslim Brotherhood, and he was a loud uh, dissident, um, calling for greater political participation and things like this. Um, so that's, and of course, in the um, in American politics now, um, it seems like uh, you know Jamal Khashoggi is a household name. And that isn't good for um, relate from the perspective of Riyadh. It's not good for relations with with the United States. So perhaps we can move on to um, what's going to happen uh, 
now under the Biden administration. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, President Biden said during his campaign, or he signaled something of a less friendly approach to Saudi Arabia than President Trump. Tre President Trump, of course, had an extremely close relationship uh, with the Saudis. Saudi Arabia was the destination of his first overseas trip. Uh, but this is what Biden said in October. Under a Biden-Harris administration, we will reassess our relationship with the kingdom, end U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, and make sure America does not check its values at the door to sell arms or buy oil. Um, very recently, we saw that the Biden administration imposed a temporary freeze on U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia. So I guess my question is, how much of a reassessment do you think is really going to take place? Um, how much of this is kind of political political theater and posturing, you know, because Saudi Arabia was something of a political issue during the campaign. Uh, what do you make of, of all this? Well, the administration, I believe, is wrestling today uh, with itself to try and decide what its policy is going to be. I would argue that um, there does need to be a reassessment. There should be a reassessment. It's a good idea to have a reassessment. Uh, the United States needs partners. Saudi Arabia has been a reliable partner for 75 years, and they are helpful to the United States in many ways. They help to finance many pro-Western governments, uh, and they often give far more money than we do to places like Egypt and Jordan and Bahrain. Uh, and Lebanon, uh, and Oman. So they are a, they help us to stabilize the Middle East in that way. They help to stabilize oil markets. We could talk about that in great detail. They have for the last 20 years been extremely cooperative in uh, saving American lives from in their counterterrorism operations. And they are um, promoting today a much more moderate view of Islam uh, than they have in the past. So there are a lot of, and they are key to resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, so there are many ways that they can be helpful or not helpful to us. Um, on the other hand, unlike a lot of countries, we have, not only do we have interests to protect, but we have values to defend. And America's defense of human rights and the rule of law is not only something that we do because it's right, it's something that we do because it helps to provide us with influence. And therefore, uh, we have a dilemma when we come to Saudi Arabia. We have both interests and values to protect. And when it comes to the values, Saudi Arabia has a very problematic uh, performance. And we talked about it earlier. And I was, it's, I think when I thought about how I answered that question, I was probably a little too um, lenient. I mean, uh, uh, some of the things that people have been arrested, yes, they may have some reason why they arrested them, but they're not clear to us. And some of these things seem rather and the, the judicial like, system is not transparent. Yeah, the judicial system is not transparent. They, you know, so it's, we have legitimate concerns about why some of these people are in jail. And if they're in jail for a reason, then you ought to tell us because right now it doesn't look that way. Uh, and certainly the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi is inexcusable. So, you you know, there are things, there are, the war in Yemen has had far more civilian casualties than 
I don't, I don't, I'm not one of these people that say the Saudis are targeting school buses and weddings on purpose, but they're, they have been sloppy, shall we say it, to be lenient. Uh, so they're, so there are, there are human rights issues that need to be addressed. So my point is that we need to remain engaged with Saudi Arabia, but we don't need to give them a blank check. Uh, on the other hand, we don't need to make them a pariah state either. We need a balanced policy that deals with this dilemma that we have in a nuanced way. And there are many ways that we can do that. We have influence with the Saudis and we should use it to encourage them to improve their human rights record, to continue to support the, the um, Arab-Israeli peace and to come to some kind of resolution to the war in Yemen. Yeah, it, it strikes me, I think you say this at the the end of your book, that the best way to try to, to kind of push or nudge Saudi Arabia in the direction of, of our values uh, is probably not to do it by shaming and naming uh, and these kinds of things. But I mean, how realistically does the Biden administration try to um, kind of tell Saudi Arabia, look, if you want to have good relations with us, you're going to have to do better on human rights um, without, you know, publicly shaming them uh, into doing this sort of, uh, into doing it. Because right now they, they seem, you know, not really interested at all in, in making progress. Well, I, I think that's something that the administration should be aware of, is that the Saudi, one of the cardinal rules of the El Saud is not to give in under pressure, not to be seen to give in under pressure. Uh, so the, if you if you want them to do something, uh, calling them out in public, and you're a scholar of Islam, you know very well about um, the idea of giving advice quietly. Uh, so yeah, that's yeah, for religious scholars. Yeah, that's for that's for what the the boundary between politics and religion in Saudi Arabia is a pretty fine line. Um, so I would argue that naming and shaming, uh, it's one of those. It may work with some countries. Uh, it's not likely to work with people who are, you have to remember the Saudis are very proud people uh, and they they believe that they founded one of the world's great religions and they understand their importance in the global economy. And unlike most countries in the world, most countries outside of Europe in some way or another uh, are getting foreign aid from the United States, uh, getting paid, if you will, in one form or another. Uh, with Saudi Arabia, it's exactly the opposite. We go to them and ask them for money. We go to them and ask them to help us pay for this or that in some place. So, um, you know, our leverage with them is in a very different than it is in uh, with, with a lot of other countries. Um, I, that's not to say we don't have leverage. We have leverage. Um, arms sales is certainly one. Security relations is one, but it goes beyond arms sales. It goes to trading exercises, basing permits, um, uh, all sorts of military and security relationships that we have with them. It goes to the oil markets. Uh, it goes to um, the legal structure in which we allow the Saudis to be investigated or brought to trial in the United States. It goes to foreign direct investment. Um, it goes to nuclear cooperation. Uh, the Saudis are in the process of creating a nuclear program of some sort. Uh, the Emiratis already have done so. Uh, so there's technology transfer, there's investment, uh, there's all sorts of uh, trade. Uh, and then there's how do we vote in the United Nations? How do we vote for whether we want the Saudis or somebody else to become the head of the WTO? 
which mm-hmm. they just ran for. They didn't win, but they ran. Um, so there are many, many ways quietly that you can influence um, another country without going to the newspaper and pointing a finger at them, which is not, in my view, and from my experience, the best way to uh, influence the Saudis. It may be a good way to influence your own public opinion, uh, but it's not uh, not the most effective way to get the Saudis to cooperate with you. Um, so hopefully that answers okay. your question. Just one final question before we close off. Um, I want to address the issue of Saudi Arabia's stability, which is something that you, uh, you kind of call into question, actually, in, in your book. I think you write that... Uh, it's with all the changes happening, it's actually an increasingly unstable country, or at least it's right now it's going through an unstable um, period. Um, and when it comes to kind of what the alternative uh, would be to, to the El Saud, you write, make no mistake, Saudi Arabia remains a deeply religious society. Any future opposition movement to the government will probably mobilize support with calls for the restoration of religious orthodoxy, not demands for Jeffersonian democracy. So um, is is there a choice in Saudi Arabia between the El Saud and, and radical Islamism? Is that what we're what we're facing? If if there is going to be instability, what does that look like? Oh that's exactly right. Um, yeah. I think you know the S the um, the alternative to the El Saud is one of two things. If it if the if the El Saud are first of all, let me answer your question in saying that yes, the country is less stable today than it was five years ago. That is almost a tautology in the sense that anything that is changing as rapidly as Saudi Arabia is less stable. And we could have spoken for the whole hour about why it is less stable, but being less stable is not the same as being unstable. So I, I do not think that it is unstable or about to collapse tomorrow. But I do think that the changes that are taking place now, social and economic, and ultimately, I think political change will have to come as well. This vision 2030 is by and large, socially and economically moving in directions that we would like it to move and we should want it to succeed and we should support it. And that will encourage stability because as you said, and as I wrote, the alternative to the El Saud is not the Canadian Parliament. The alternative to the El Saud, if it comes through violence, is something like ISIS or Al Qaeda, who tried to overthrow the government violently in the 2003 to 2007. Or if it comes through a more peaceful um, alternative, and it could even, even this could be somewhat violent. Um, it will be a Muslim Brotherhood or affiliated government. The Muslim Brotherhood is a catchphrase that, you know, they don't always go by the name of Muslim Brotherhood uh, in uh, Lebanon. They might call themselves, uh, or in Palestine, they might call themselves uh, Hamas and Yemen, they call themselves something else. You know, they have different names in different places. Um, but uh, they call them Islam in, um, in Yemen. But um, they all share a certain fundamental ideology. And that is... Um, that is the likely what you would get. Yes, you would probably get the Islamic Republic of Arabia. Uh, <laughs> and we saw what happened when we got the Islamic Republic of Iran. And the Islamic Republic of Arabia would not share our interests or our values. And to the extent that we're trying to protect both, uh, we're probably better off 
trying to encourage the El Saud to continue there. As I say, there, there were social reforms are going in the right direction. I mean, they, we should be we should be applauding that actually and, and supporting it. And the economic reforms are trying to go in the right direction, and we should be encouraging that, not discouraging it. Uh, eventually, the political change is going to have to come as well. And that you can be hopeful, you can be optimistic, but right now, as you pointed out, uh, it's become more authoritarian. So that is hopefully something that we can influence in the future. All right. Well, on that note, we should close the show. David, thanks for coming on. To our listeners, you can follow Hoover's working group on the Middle East and the Islamic world at hoover.org slash caravan. Please come back to the podcast in mid-February to hear my colleague Russell Berman interview Ilham Mena on her new book, The Perils of Nonviolent Islamism, forthcoming from Telos Press. Menau teaches in the Political Science Institute of the University of Zurich with a focus on the Middle East, women's rights, and Islamism. She will discuss her book as well as recent developments around Islamism in Europe, including the upcoming referendum on banning the burqa in Switzerland. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.